I want you to think with me about a young virgin girl, about 14, 15 years old. Pregnant with a child, she was told by an angel would be called the Son of the Most High. He would come to receive the throne of his father David and he would reign over the house of Jacob forever with a never-ending kingdom. Uh, This young girl is traveling with her soon-to-be husband under a decree of the government. She walked about 80 miles, pregnant. Finally arriving in the night, the young couple comes into the small town of Bethlehem. There's no room at the inn. So in the most humble of arrangements, she gives birth to her firstborn son, wraps him in linen cloths, and lays him in the feeding trough of an animal. We know the story, right? We just heard it earlier as we read through Luke 2. The virgin birth, the visit of the wise men, as Matthew tells us, the star in the east, the singing angels. Something amazing happened that night. It's more amazing than a pregnant virgin, more amazing than a choir of angels. And I hope this morning that we will convey a bit of this wonder, this awe, this this majesty of the great night when Jesus was born. There is a a great mystery to Christmas. And there's a great mystery to Jesus becoming flesh. And so that's what we are going to consider this morning. If you will, join me in the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We will begin in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Move down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John describes for us Christmas. Notice John's concern is not with angels, is not with a manger, is not even with a virgin or a baby. John provides for us a completely different perspective than what we already read. John gives us the most profound statement in his entire gospel. And I dare say, in all of literature, the most profound statement that has ever been written The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I hope as you think about that, it gives you chills. I want to talk about what John has written for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to consider the great mystery of Christmas, the great mystery of the Word becoming flesh. 
And perhaps you think it odd that we talk about it as a mystery. I think as I go along, I'll convince you of that very thing. In fact, as you think about Emmanuel, as we sang, meaning God with us, I think you bump into some of the most mind-blowing realities that we see in all of Scripture's. As I read the Bible, I can conceptualize the parting of the Red Sea. I can imagine that in my mind. I can imagine even manna coming from heaven and resting upon the ground for the people to gather up each morning. I can even picture what maybe it was like when God created all things. But we're going to consider some things that will leave us completely dumbfounded. Some amazing realities of the scriptures that point us to the fact that Jesus Christ truly is God. And so we need to begin with the foundation of this ministry. We're talking, of course, about the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God, the Son of God taking on flesh and dwelling among men. And right from the start in verse 1, John establishes very important truths about the Word. And of course, we know from verse 14 that the Word he speaks of is Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 1. We need to ask, what does John reveal to us about the Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Three main things he points to here. First, he points out that Jesus is eternal. He writes, in the beginning was the Word. John is echoing the the opening words of all of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John is making very clear to us in the same beginning when God created the heavens and the earth was the Word and the Word was with God. He is immediately transporting us back to the beginning of it all, pointing us back as much as able to a point before creation, before time began. And he makes this astounding statement about Jesus. He was there as the Word. In the beginning. And not only was he there, he was himself that word that spoke the cosmos into existence. John also says that the word was with God. The word was with God. This literally means toward God. You could say that the word was face to face with God. And if you know anything about the scriptures, you know that nobody stands face to face with God and survives. But John tells us that he was face to face with God. It's the language of utmost intimacy, of love, of concern, of care, of unity. The word Jesus Christ was with God. And he tells us that the Word was God. So the Word was eternal. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was the supreme being. The Father is the supreme being. And the Word is the supreme 
being. Two distinct persons who are one and the same supreme being. So you see right away in John's gospel, we cannot ever think of Jesus as a great moral teacher. If he were not what he claimed to be, he's not Lord. He's not Savior. If he's not what he said he was, if he's not what John says he is, he's a deceiver and a blasphemer. He is the very thing that he was executed for in his culture. So the claim that John makes is confronting us in a very stunning way. We cannot get out of the confrontation of the claims of Jesus Christ. He is either what he said he was or he's a liar. And we can't make him anything less than what he says he was. But John tells us he always was. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He spoke all things into existence. He was with God. He is God. It's far more than a great moral teacher. It's far more than a prophet. He was no ordinary man. Matthew one twenty three, quoting Isaiah 7, says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the virgin bore a son, and he was God with us with us. Now if you notice as you read through the gospels Jesus' favorite name for himself was son of man. But when Jesus called himself the son of man in front of the Jewish people in the first century they understood very clearly that he was identifying himself with that person who was defined and described in the Old Testament book of Daniel as a heavenly being who comes from the very throne of God on a mission to judge the world. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he was describing himself not only in terms of his activity, but of his origin. He was telling his hearers where he had come from. So the word was eternal. He was with God. He was God. And that is just the beginning of the mystery. Now, John, of course, doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but he's highlighting the relationship between the Father and the Word, the Father and the Son, two distinct persons, one and the same being. The Father is God. The Son is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. And they relate to one another. I, you, he, me, these are language, uh, these are parts of language that they use. It's a tri-personal being that nobody can fully understand. And as a side note, this verse, verse 1, more than any other Bible passage, is foundational to our confession of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the incarnation begins with this great reality that Jesus is eternal. Jesus was with God. Jesus is 
God. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. So John reaffirms the eternality of the word. Jesus is, I am. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is Jehovah. No beginning. He always was. When the Father was, the Son was. The Father always was, the Son always was. He is, I am. Remember, Jesus said that of himself before Abraham was, I am. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Word is the very creator of the material and spiritual universe. Again, we see here John is pointing back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, there is a Hebrew word, a name of God that is used nowhere else in the Bible. It is the name Elohim. That is creator. Elohim said, let us make man in our image. Now, if that's not clear evidence of a Trinitarian God, I don't know what is. The word John points to is Elohim. The maker of heaven and earth and nothing that is made was made apart from him. The Father is the Creator. The Son is the Creator. I am Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim. And verse 4, he says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is alive. He is the living God. He is living, He is active, He is distinct from the Father, and yet one and the same, He is God the Son. And now we see in this great verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what happened on Christmas night. This is what is most amazing about Christmas. God did many, many amazing things on that night, but this is the most amazing. Now it's very important to note that John didn't write that God became man. He uses the word flesh. And God became flesh. The emphasis here is on how far the Word travels without losing His divinity. He doesn't say He was changed into a man or made into a man. He became flesh and remained everything that He always was, but was now that in human flesh. John's very specific with this word. Flesh reminds us of frailty, of of, a lit, of littleness, of smallness. Well, God the Son became what He never was. He took on flesh. He became God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And so when John wrote, He dwelt among us, Jewish believers would have thought of the tabernacle we read about in the Old Testament. Remember, the tabernacle was literally a tent in the middle of the people in which the glory of God dwelt. 
God dwelt in their midst. This is how his glory was beheld. And remember, remember when Moses went into the tent of meeting? He came back out. The people could not stand to even look at him because he radiated the glory of what he just beheld in the presence of God. But now John writes, the glory itself is present with us in the Word. The Word is in our midst. The glory of God is revealed to us in the God-man, Jesus Christ, and we have beheld it. And there is the great mystery. This is what's most amazing about Christmas. The Word became flesh. There's several great things that the mystery points us to. This mystery shows us deity joined with humanity. Divine nature, human nature in one person. Theologically, we call this the hypostatic union. That Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man. One of the easiest ways to think about this, and it still won't help you wrap your mind around it because we can't completely understand this, but if you think of when you go to the ice cream machine. If you have vanilla and you have chocolate, in the middle, there's a lever you pull and it mixes vanilla and chocolate together, right? I never get that one. I just get vanilla. We cannot think of the hypostatic union. We cannot think of Jesus' humanity and his divinity in that way. They're not combined in that way. They're not combined as part human and part divine. I know that's immediately where our minds go to because that's the only thing that we can conceptualize, that he's part of something and part of another something. That's the easiest way for us to understand his humanity and his divinity, but that's not it. Jesus was fully God, 100% God. But Jesus was 100% man, 100% human. They're joined inseparably, joined permanently. They are very distinct, but one and the same. If you have a way of explaining that, please let me know. This is part of the mystery. He had a human body. He had a human soul. But he was God. Now consider this, I I think sometimes we don't know this or we don't think about this. Prior to Jesus' incarnation, prior to Jesus coming to dwell on the earth and taking on flesh, he did not have this dual nature. He always was, but as he came to the earth, he became what he never was. But he became what he always will be. You see the mystery yet? Well, let's drill down a little deeper. In Jesus, we have a limited human mind joined to the omniscient mind of God. How did Jesus come into the world? He came as a baby. 
I just had a baby a, a week ago. Well, my wife did. It's mine, though. I know what that's like. A lot of crying, a lot of screaming, very little sleep. That's how Jesus came into the world. Jesus was not laying there as an infant looking at Mary and just kind of thinking to himself as a one-week-old infant, you have no idea. (laughs) Jesus did everything that babies do. And and we see in Luke chapter 2, it says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What does that suggest? That suggests that Jesus in his humanity had to grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. He had to learn things. Jesus had to study the scriptures like you and I. He had to ask questions. He sought answers. He had a limited human mind just as you and I. We can grasp that. But at the same time, Jesus had the omniscient mind of God. And again, don't put them both together and say, well, Jesus had to learn to prove that he was human, but he really knew. But that's not accurate. He was 100% man. He grew in knowledge and wisdom as a man. But he was completely omniscient as God. For example, Matthew chapter 9, 3 through 4, we see Jesus healing a paralytic man. And then he forgives his sins tells him to pick up his mat and walk. And then we read, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man, speaking of Jesus, is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus read their minds. He knew their thoughts. He knew what they thought of him and what he had just done. John chapter 2, verse 24, we see Jesus preaching and people believing. And then John writes, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Literally, he knew their hearts. He knew their fickleness. He knew their true unbelief. You see, Jesus was omniscient. He's all-knowing. Jesus knows all there is to know about you, about your family, about your thoughts, about your heart, what you do when you're alone, what you think, what you are going to say, what you look at, what you imagine and dream and desire and long for. He knows what's going on in this church and what you do for one another and how you love and serve one another because of the love he has given to us for one another. Think about that. Jesus knows all. But how can one person have two minds? He just does. (laughs) In Jesus, we see the limited human mind joined to the omniscient mind of God. In Jesus, we also see a submissive human will joined to the sovereign will of the Father. Where better to see the submissive human will of Jesus than at the Garden of Gethsemane? 
The scriptures say he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is Jesus' human will, submissive to the will of the Father. Humanly, he didn't want to die on the cross. Only a masochist would want that. In his human will, he expressed to his Father his desire. But simultaneously, he wished there was another way. He knew what was to come both physically and spiritually, and he also desired to see that the Father's will was accomplished, and he submitted himself to the Father. And yet also in Jesus, we see the sovereign will of the supreme being. For example, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 22, we read, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. This is the sovereign will of the Son. And so we see Jesus did the will of the Father, and He said it many, many times through the Scriptures. He submitted Himself to the Father time and time again. But Jesus simultaneously did as He pleased because He had the sovereign will of the Supreme Being. Again, fully God and fully man. We see in Jesus that There's a limited human strength joined to an omnipotent strength of the supreme being. In Luke's account of Jesus at Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, and then we see, and then there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. There was a supernatural assistance that was provided for Jesus, a supernatural strength that was given to Jesus to do his human nature, the work that he was sent to do. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus comes into Samaria after a long day of walking. He comes to Jacob's well. And it says in the scriptures, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus was weary. He was weak from his journey. He was tired. He needed rest. He had the same weakness as you and me. And we see in the next verse he asked for a drink of water. And then, amazingly, we see him reveal in his humanity, we see him reveal his omniscient mind. He tells the woman he meets all about her life. And so in the same account, we see the limited human strength of Jesus and the omniscient mind of Jesus. Likewise, we see that he is able to do all he wants to do simply by speaking. Remember, John told us all things were made through him. And we learn in Genesis 1 how everything was made. Very simply, he spoke. Let there be. In those three words, there is creative power that cannot be stopped. 
the ver- this is the very thing that the people saw Jesus do before their very eyes. They were witness to his omnipotence. They were witness to his power. He cast out demons and the people were left to say, what did we just see? Who is this? Remember when Jesus rebuked the fever in Peter's mother-in-law? And instantly she got up and she began serving the disciples. He cleanses a man of leprosy. He has the power to forgive sins. He tells him, your sins are forgiven. Get up, take up your mat and walk. Go home. Perhaps most amazing, he comes to the tomb of a man named Lazarus who is dead for three days and simply says, Lazarus, come forth. And he has life and he's alive and living and dwelling with the people once again. Now, remember Jesus sleeping on the boat? Again, he was human. He needed rest. He was tired. He was asleep on the boat. And the wind and the waves came in a tempestuous storm. And the disciples get scared and they wake up Jesus. Master, Master, awaken. We're going to drown. We're going to die. And Jesus quietly stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and they stop. And the disciples look at each other and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? You see, time and time again, we see people that were full of fear at what they saw Jesus doing. He read their minds, he knew their pasts, he healed their wounds and their sickness, he forgave their sins. They were scared. And the testimony of Scripture again and again and again is that when they saw these things, they glorified God. And so in Jesus we see two minds and two wills and two strengths in one person. This is the mystery of Christmas. And we do injustice to this mystery and the beauty of what it is and why it is when we try to resolve the tension that it creates. It's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. It was the greatest night in human history. Let's not try and resolve the tension that God has created. This mystery shows us Deity, but deity veiled in humanity. In John chapter 17, Jesus was praying what we call the high priestly prayer. And in verse 5 of that chapter, we read, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, Jesus knew exactly who he was. He remembered that he had glory with the Father. Where he was, what it was, what it was like, he understood equality with the Father was his rightful possession, and yet he emptied himself. Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped 
but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so we see in Jesus, he looked, he felt, and he smelled like an ordinary baby. But he was an omniscient, omnipotent baby. He looked and he felt and he smelled like an ordinary man. But he was an omniscient, omnipotent man. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? Wonderful, wonderful chapter. We see the amazing picture of God on display before the prophet Isaiah. And a display of the proper worship of man. Who did Isaiah see on the throne when he entered the throne room of heaven? It was Jesus. Isaiah saw Jesus. And when he saw Jesus seated on the throne, there was no light that was necessary because the light of Jesus shone so brightly. His robe filled the room. The heavenly creatures surrounded the throne as they worshipped And Isaiah saw all of this and immediately he said, Woe is me, I'm undone. My eyes have seen the King. He saw the glory of Jesus before he came to earth, seated on the throne, surrounded by angels. It's a majestic sight and he feels his own uncleanliness in relationship to what he is observing. This is Jesus, the divine, omniscient, omnipotent king, seated on the throne, reigning and ruling, the human, the baby, the child, the man, the suffering servant. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He came into the world under the law. He took on flesh. He fulfilled the law perfectly on behalf of his people. So what does all of this mean? Before the incarnation, God the Son, just like God the Father, was invisible. But then the Word became flesh, human, body, and soul. And because He became human, He became visible by virtue of the body that was His. He was celestial. He was in heaven. Isaiah saw His glory there. But He has come down and He has become present. Emmanuel, God with us on earth. He was regal, reigning on his throne, but he became a servant. He not only looked like a man, but he acted like a servant to do the will of God, his father. Before he was invulnerable, but in his humanity he was vulnerable to temptation and harm. Before he was unapproachable, in an unapproachable light that no man could see because his light is blinding and lethal. But he came to the earth and was approachable. 
He was unapproachable and regal and celestial and invulnerable. He was high and lifted up, dwelling in the light, invisible in heaven in the form of God and the Father. And yet he became what he never was, approachable, a man, a servant of men, vulnerable to temptation and danger, dwelling in the flesh among the people of the earth, visible for all men to see in his outward appearance. Who can fathom all of this? A divine human being with two minds and two wills and two strengths. It is an unfathomable mystery, but it's glorious. It's beautiful. It's Christmas. So we ask, is this what Christmas is all about? A mystery so great that it's unfathomable? Yes, indeed. It's about the supreme being, God the Son, becoming human and being at the same time divine. And so we can't just look at this and say, wow. But we have to ask, why did God do this? What is this all about? What is the reason for this? I want to remind all of us, it's very important in our celebration today that we do not separate out our holidays. We cannot have what we celebrate in each of our holidays without the others. If Jesus never took on flesh, he would have never died to be resurrected from the dead. And if he was never resurrected from the dead, his birth is no more significant than yours or mine. So we must remember today, Christmas is simply a preparation for Good Friday. That's exactly what the angel of the Lord revealed to Joseph in a dream when he was told about Jesus' birth, right? He said of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so the son... The Word takes on flesh that He might have flesh with which to die. And in giving His flesh for the world, the world can have life because now sins can be forgiven. Life can be provided because substitute has been made. And by faith in Him, we have eternal joy united to God the Father in perfect union through the finished work and redemption of Jesus Christ. Through death, he would destroy sin and death and the stronghold of Satan. He came on the promise that God first presented to us in Genesis 3.15, that he would crush the head of Satan. He would defeat the enemies of God. He would bring to ruin sin and all of its consequences. He came to deliver his people from death and the devil and to destroy evil works on all the earth. That's why God became human without ceasing to be God. God the Son became human to save sinners and delivered us from Satan, from sin, from death, from the the bondage of these things in our lives and He set us free. That's what this mystery is all about. And not one of us is worthy of this great reality. 
Not one of us is worthy of the opportunity to celebrate this great and magnificent occasion. But in Christ, we are made worthy. We are all sinners deserving death. But God, but God, rich in mercy, has set us free. God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin. He who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Because if we go before the Father on our own terms, with a righteousness that we seek to provide on our own, with our good deeds, our good works, we will fall far short of God's standard of perfection and will be separated from Him forever and ever. And yet God the Father in the Son, Jesus Christ, has provided a way for us. And He calls us to repent of our sin to turn from our sin, to believe in the gospel of Christ, to place our trust in Jesus as our means of salvation, as our own righteousness, and to be set free. To receive the joy of Christ, to delight truly in the reason that we celebrate, to make known the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. And he came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. That the ancient of days should be born. That he who thunders in the heaven should cry In the cradle. That he who rules the stars should nurse at his mother. That a virgin should conceive. That Christ should be made of a woman. And to that woman which he himself made. That the branch should bear the vine. That the mother should be younger than the child she bare. And the child in the womb bigger than the mother, that the human nature should not be God and yet would be one with God. Christ taking on flesh is a great mystery we will never fully understand until we come to heaven. If our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us in profound ways. Behold the love that surpasses all understanding. Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. He's for us. He is our Savior. He is our King. And today and every Lord's Day, we rejoice. We rejoice. And because God is with us, we have the great privilege of having union and communion with Him. We have the great joy as His people of participating with Him in communion to remember His death on our behalf. 
to receive the benefits that are ours in Christ Jesus, to be nourished and to be strengthened in our growth in Christ and in our community with God's people. And so this morning we have the great privilege of coming to the table together to partake. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church. And so the proper recipients of this ordinance are only those who are part of Christ's body. If you have repented of the sin in your life and you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul, then you are welcomed and invited and encouraged to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you are not a believer in Jesus or if you are currently in open rebellion against God in unrepentant sin or if you are under the discipline of another local church, then you should not partake of this meal. We're going to take a moment to prepare our hearts to receive the body and blood of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul urges the church to examine themselves before and when they take communion. This instruction was in the context of the love that each Christian had for each other in the church. It's selflessness versus selfishness and unity with others within the body. So let's take a brief moment for silent preparation and then we will pray together and we will eat and drink together. Let's pray.